Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody. Glad that you're here. Hope the Christmas season is going well for you and uh, looking forward to our study time together tonight. So good to, good to see everybody. We're down to the final 30 verses tonight. One more Wednesday night that we will have, and that's next Wednesday night that we'll be studying together. And then after next Wednesday night, we take a three-week break for Christmas and then come back in January, and then we'll wrap up First Peter uh, at the end of January. So we're just about 25 verses away after tonight from, uh, from wrapping up Peter's letter to, uh, to the Gentile believers there in Asia Minor. Let's pray together and we'll get started tonight. Father, thank you for your word and that how God you bless us and use us in so many different ways through it. And I pray tonight the instruction that you give us from your word will be powerful. The Holy Spirit will teach us exactly what we need to know, but not just teach us, Lord, convict us of the places that we need to be better, that we need to serve you better, and the insight that you give us that we put it into practice so that we honor you in even greater ways. God, thank you for those who have joined us tonight here live. Thank you for those who are joining us online. Pray your presence would be there everywhere the place of the word that goes out tonight. I pray that you would bless. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, what he means to us for this season of year. We celebrate the incarnation. We're thankful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. First Peter chapter 4 tonight. We will look at verses 3 through 7. Remember, persecution is about to begin in earnest for the Gentile believers living on the Black Sea in Asia Minor. Peter wrote to them in 63 A.D. So far, remember... Concerning those believers there in the Roman Empire in 63 AD, there was a lot of suspicion about Christianity. There was a lot of accusations being made. There was a lot of misunderstanding of Christianity in the Roman Empire during that time. We saw last Wednesday night that they were accused, Christians were, of being cannibals because they gathered secretly in the churches and ate, the, uh, ate body, uh, body and drank blood. Of course, it's just the Lord's Supper, but they misunderstood them to be cannibals. They were accused of having sexual orgies during worship services because they called their fellowship time love feasts. And so, because of that, they misunderstood Christianity to be a big sexual orgy every time that they, that they came and, and gathered for worship. They accused believers of being anti-family because their first loyalty was to Christ rather than to family. So they were accused of being anti-family. Christians were being accused in the Roman Empire of being unpatriotic because they would not bow down to the Roman gods. They were accused of atheism because they would reject all other Roman gods and they would accept only their God, the God of Israel. They were accused of incest because they called each other brothers and sisters and even husbands and wives called each other brother and sisters, and so they, they were misunderstood concerning that. They were misunderstood about, they were called anti-business and anti-community because they, they discouraged the sale of idols and, and buying idols, so therefore they thought, well, it hurts business in the Roman Empire. And so a lot of things going on swirling about Christianity, a lot of suspicion and misunderstanding in the culture. So one year, after Nero, uh, rather after Peter wrote the letter, Nero began in A.D. 64 to really ramp up his persecution, set fire to Rome, blame the fire on the Christians. He said the gods were angry because you're not worshiping them, so it's the Christians' fault. 
persecuted Christians severely, and that started in one year after Peter wrote this letter. Burned Christians at the stake, beheaded them, pitted them against animals where they would be devoured in public settings and things like that. So, Peter writes and tells them persecution right around the corner, so therefore you need to be a certain type of person. So we saw that last week we looked at verses 1 and 2. So look at letter A under your outline very quickly looking back at the first part of chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking as Christ. So listen again verses 1 and 2 what Peter told them. Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So those are the first two verses that we wrapped up with last Wednesday night. Remember he said, Christ's suffering should be your example for suffering. Suffering's about to hit. What Jesus endured and how he suffered should be your model and your example. So Peter said, arm yourselves, get ready suffering's coming, so arm yourselves. How do you arm yourselves? Well, not with a weapon, not with a gun, not with a knife. Arm yourself, he says, with your mind. Arm yourself with a way of thinking that is to be different. Think like Jesus thought. Jesus lived not for human passions, but for the will of God, so must we. We must live not for ourselves, not for our passions, not for our emotions or what even we want, but for doing the will of God. But here's where we come to tonight's passage. Some of the believers that Peter was writing to um, were not doing that. They were actually engaging in lifestyles that they had before they were saved. Now think about that. Lifestyles they engaged in had to do with a lot of sexual immorality, had a lot to do with a lot of alcohol. And so he writes primarily tonight saying, now that you're saved, you need to put aside those things you lived like before you were saved. That's a good word for us. Those, we should not live the same way we lived before we knew Jesus. Now that Jesus has come into our lives, those things we used to do, those attitudes we used to hold, those values we used to hold, those actions we used to do, that gossip that we had, all of those things that we used to do before Christ, we don't need to go back to those. We need to move forward and put those behind us. Well, some of the believers were not doing that. They were going back to their old way of life, to the sexual part to the immorality to the alcohol and so he discusses that in our passage uh, tonight so starting in verse 3 letter B on your outline it is time he says to live like believers rather than living like unbelievers so listen to what he says starting in verse 3 for the time that is past, talking about your old life, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Now, Gentiles meaning lost. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Verse 4. 
With respect to this, they, lost people, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Now, the word flood there is the word overflowing, as we know a flood is, but the word debauchery is the word riot, R-I-O-T, like a, a riot. I'll tell you in a moment why that word's used. And they malign you, blaspheme you, is what the word literally means. Verse 5, but they will give account, logos, they'll give a word to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, that they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, there's some phrases in there that are kind of confusing, verses that are kind of confusing. So let's start talking about verses 3 through 6. He tells them it's time to stop living like a lost person. It's time to start living like a believer. Now, a couple of thoughts as we approach this passage. One is this passage suggests that the believers at one time had lived like that. At one time, they lived in sexual immorality, they lived in drunkenness, they lived with alcohol, and now he says it's time to put that in the past. The passage also suggests that the persecution they were about to face was not just political. Sometimes we look at this time period and we say, well, it was all about Nero, it was all about politics. No, there were some of them that were persecuted because they would not engage in lifestyles like lost people. Lost people get mad when you don't do what they do. If you're a believer tonight and you refuse to take part in what lost people do, they're going to get angry at you. You're not going to be popular. And so some of the persecution they endured wasn't because of Nero. It was because some of them would not go to the orgies and the drunken parties with them. They refused. Some believers went, but others did not. Now, listen to what he says in verse 3. For the time has passed, in other words, it's the perfect tense, the time has ended that you live like a lost person. Put that behind you. Never let that occur again. Sometimes as believers, we do things we used to do before we got saved. Sometimes we do. We fall back into those old ways. And Peter's good advice to us to say, don't even go back there once. Jesus has saved us. Saved us from a life that is not pleasing to Him for a life that is pleasing to Him. Don't go back to your old ways. Just put them in the past, perfect tense, and keep going. Peter said, you have spent enough time living like the world. Now that you're called to live like Christians, it is a foolish waste of time to go back and live like they live. So, Stop being double-minded, trying to live for Christ and trying to live your old life too. Get your old life behind you and keep going toward godliness and going toward the future. Now look at the next phrase, doing what 
Gentiles do. Enough, the time has passed that you don't do what Gentiles do. Now, it's interesting he uses the word Gentiles here because that phrase hints to us that these believers were indeed Gentiles. Um, There are some people that said, you know, well, no, he was writing to Jews. Probably not. And here's one of the hints we get. He was probably writing to those people that were Gentiles. They were not they were not Jews. They were as we are. They'd spent too much time living like that. Note the prominence of sexual activity and the alcohol-related activities that he mentions in verse 4. Or rather, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 3. He mentions six activities. They all have to do with alcohol and sex. Now, Paul mentions the same thing in Romans 13. Believers don't have to do with sexual immorality and don't have to do with drunkenness. Galatians 5, he says the same thing, put away with drunkenness and sexual immorality. This, I think, is still a good word for believers today. Because you would think Christians today are not sexually immoral and we're not drunkards. But statistics show that Christians and non-Christians alike about the same percentages of those who are involved in sexual immorality and drunkenness and alcohol-related issues. So this is a good word not just for those believers in 63 AD. I think it's a good word for all of us. Those types of things should not be a part of our lives either. Now, it's interesting Some of the persecution they were facing was because they would not go back to their old life. And lost people, their old friends, got angry that they would not do it. I've found the same to be true today. I've found that somebody gets saved in our church. um, They're saved out of a lifestyle of immorality or or whatever, and, and they're different. And then they go out and they don't live that way anymore, their old friends get angry at them because they're not doing that anymore. They don't go to the places they used to go. They don't do the things they used to do. They don't talk like they used to talk. They don't value the things they used to value. And as a result, the lost world doesn't like it. They get angry. And you know what? They're going to they're going to get angry with us because as Dr. Meyer said, the world does not like it when you look like God. When you resemble Christ, the world doesn't like it. They're not going to applaud you because you're a Christian. They're not going to applaud you because you don't do what they do. They're going to get angry at you. And so that's what was happening in these days as well. Now, at the end of verse 3, Peter mentions six actions. Did you notice in all six of these actions, he he mentions them, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. As he talks about these, did you notice that they're all in the plural? Not singular, plural. And the reason is, any time in the Greek language something is made in the plural rather than the singular, it increases the intensity. So he's talking about how intense these actions were 
even among believers. Notice something else about all of these actions. All of them refer to public sins, not private, public sins, pagan sins. Things lost people do and the pagans were doing in those days. The worst type of sin, open, unashamed sin. And some people believe that maybe Peter names these sins by name because he's trying to wake up these believers to say, look how ashamed, listen to what you were doing. And he starts to name them, maybe to make them blush, make them ashamed of what they used to do. And like I said, primarily the sins had to do with sex and alcohol. Look at the list. Living in sensuality, this word begins a list of sins that Peter understood should mark their past life, but it really talks about excesses of all kinds of evil. It involves a lack of restraint, self-restraint. It involves picturing sin that is much more public than it is private. Passions, the word is literally lust. Some of your translations may say lusts. Peter talks about drunkenness. The root word there, fluo, literally means silly babbling. When somebody gets drunk and they babble mindlessly, that's what the word fluo meant. People think it's funny. Oh, they're drunk and they're babbling and it's funny. Peter didn't think it's funny. He used it, he used it as a word that marked the past way of life they should be ashamed of. Getting drunk and talking nonsense. Orgies, just exactly what we know. Drunken parties, exactly what we know, same as today. And then he says, lawless idolatry. What was that? Here's what he was talking about. Remember the word riots earlier, debauchery? What was going on in this day was there was a a cult in, in Rome, and by cult is just simply a religious following, that followed the Roman god Bacchus. Some of you may, re, may have heard of God, uh, studied in, in school, the god of Bacchus. Started with the Greek god Dionysius. Uh, Romans adopted that god, the god of wine, the god of uh, fertility, the god of wine, the god of... Uh, of vineyards, fruit of the vineyards. And so they would worship the god of Bacchus, the god of, of wine, and they would have these parties at night where they would march in procession to the streets of Rome. They would get drunk. They would have these wild, it's basically a riot was what it was, half-drunken citizens or full-drunken citizens after dinner, would parade through the streets with torches and music in honor of Bacchus, drunk as a skunk, most of them, worshiping the god of, of, of Bacchus. And these parties would go on into the night, into the wee hours of the morning. In fact, this drunken stupor that they would be in, and they would do these ecstatic dances along with it, was called Bacchia. You were, that was the drunken dance that you did. You did a Bacchia, which came from Bacchus, the god of, of wine. So these were really popular in 63 AD through the streets of Rome. And joining them in those processions at night 
were some of the believers in this church. Wow. That's odd, isn't it? Can you picture that? Believers from the church he's writing to actually involved in this drunken frenzy worshiping the Roman god Bacchus. And that was a direct reference when he says the phrase lawless idolatry and the rioting from debauchery in the word previously. They were involved in that. And you're going, why would Christians be involved in that? But you look at our days. Out till two, three, four in the morning, drunk on the streets and babbling, and, and you're going, believers doing that? Yeah. Not a lot's changed. In fact, when you look at the list of these six that's going on in their day, and you look at our day, they're the same six. And it makes you realize how little humanity has progressed from 63 AD to 2023. Same thing's going on. We as believers, Peter said, do not be a part of that. Now look at verse 4. With respect to this, they, to lost people, are surprised when you do not join them. In the same flood of rioting, and they blaspheme you. The refusal of Christians to join the pagan rituals caused anger in the community. And when the lost world sees us not participating with them in their sins, they're surprised at us and they think, boy, what a waste. You Christians are really wasting your life. You're not having fun. As if that's fun. And he says, they will speak evil of you. They'll talk badly about you. Also, in that day, national and community ceremonies were typical, and they would involve Roman deities. Well, believers in Jesus in this church, they would not participate. And when they did not participate, they were criticized by family members and by friends because they would not participate in these gods being worshipped. Listen to what Dr. Constable says about verse 4. He said, unsaved people do not understand the radical change that their friends experience when they trust Christ and they become children of God. They do not think it strange when people wreck their bodies or destroy homes or ruin their lives by running from sex and out, running to sex and alcohol. But let a drunkard become sober. Or an immoral person become pure, and the family thinks they've lost their mind. And they say, what a waste. Well, that's what was happening here in verse 4. They think it with respect to this. They are surprised you do not join them. But listen to verse 5. Peter goes on. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So Peter brings everything back to one day. They make fun of you now. One day they will stand before God in judgment and they will realize that the drunken parties and the sexual immorality, that was wrong. When they stand before God in His holiness and His purity. 
The Greek construction in verse 5 is much more emphatic than it is in English. In other words, one theologian says verse 5 rings out with doom. They'll stand before God one day reminded that the picture is the judge is going to proceed to the bench, begin the proceedings of judgment, and the accused are going to realize at that moment they have been wrong. And so Peter is reminding these believers that God is going to condemn their unsaved friends' behavior and that Gentile Christians should not return to their old ways of life. Peter says the judge is just about ready to judge and everyone will give an account of himself to the judge. The word account is logos. You know the word logos, it means word. So, as lost people stand before God, they're going to try to come up with words, justify their life, justify what they did, justify what they thought, but there is no justification. The only justification is in Christ. So, their words will ring hollow. Peter viewed those who slander Christians for not participating in the lifestyle as really slandering God who call us out of darkness into light. Now look at verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Okay, what does that mean? Even though they're judging the flesh the way the people are, they might in the spirit live the way God does. What does he mean? What does it mean the gospel was preached to those who are dead? Now, four main theories as to what it means. First theory is some people believe this verse is proof you have a second chance after you die. Now, we believe, I believe, the Scripture teaches once you die, you don't have another chance to receive Christ. But there are a lot of people out there that believe you will have more chances again after you die to become a believer and go to heaven. And they take this verse, verse 6. That's proof text. You get another chance after you die. What does it say? It says the gospel was preached to even those who were dead. So that's one theory. You get a second chance. However, if you remember me talking about in the past, biblical interpretation and I teach a class, or used to teach a class, I don't anymore, but I did teach a class on biblical hermeneutics, principles of how do you interpret the Bible? How do, you, how do you know what it's saying? And one of the most basic hermeneutical principles of interpretation is you let Scripture interpret Scripture. You let the Bible interpret itself. So, as you look at this verse, do you see anywhere else in the Bible that you get a second chance? No. So this verse isn't backed up anywhere else in Scripture. In fact, the opposite. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Simple. Live your life, die, you're judged. No second chance. So he's not talking about the gospel being preached to dead people or they get a chance to be saved again. Second theory is it's a metaphor for spiritually dead. 
The spiritually dead people are, have the gospel preached to them. Those people are still alive physically, walking around, but they're spiritually dead. And so the gospel is preached to dead people. Now, the, same, the word that's used for dead there means physically dead, not spiritually dead. So that's probably not it either. Third theory. Some people say it refers back to last chapter, chapter 3, verse 19. You remember verse 319 that says Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison? Ah, that's what he's talking about, some people say. It's a reference of Jesus preaching to the dead between the crucifixion and resurrection. He went to hell and preached to the dead people. Well, two problems with that theory. One is the word preach is different. Remember me telling you a couple of weeks ago there are 15 different New Testament words for preach? And in verse chapter 3, verse 19, when Jesus went to the spirits in prison and preached, he didn't try to evangelize them. He just made a declaration. In other words, so the word caruso was used. Remember that? Well, in verse 6, caruso's not used. Evangelizo is used. Evangelize, trying to get somebody saved. So it couldn't have been chapter 3, verse 19. Not only that, the word spirits is used in verse 19, but in verse 6, the word dead is used. So probably not referring back there either. So what's probably the best theory? Number four. Probably whenever he says those, uh, that's when the gospel was preached even to the dead, he was probably talking about those people who when they were alive heard the gospel but rejected it since have died. A couple reasons for that. One is what's, what Peter uses here in the Greek language is what's called the aorist passive. That means he's talking about past tense. The gospel is not currently being preached to dead people. It happened in the past. The dead men at one time, and women, at one time had the gospel preached to them. It does not say the gospel is being preached. It denotes a historical past tense. It was being preached. Very possible, too, the subject of the verbs Christ here. So, it would be Christ was preached to the dead when they were alive. They had a chance. They were alive. Had the gospel preached to them. And they rejected it. Then he says, Peter did not say the gospel is being preached even now. He says it was preached then. Because we will give an account of our lives to God, that's why we preach the gospel. We do so in order that people can receive Christ and one day as they stand before God can have a joyful account rather than a sorrowful account. All of this is a strong encouragement to people suffering when it, Christ has given ultimate victory, and they're going to face suffering in one more year. Now, one more point and one more verse, and we'll close for tonight. Verse 7, go letter C on your outline. In time living, self-controlled, and sober-minded. One interesting verse, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Verse 7. Listen to what Peter says. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore... Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What was he saying? Let's talk about that for a moment. First of all, Peter says the 
end of all things, the telos, completion of all things, is at hand. 63 AD, here we are, 2023, the end still hasn't come. Was Peter mistaken? No. Because the end times, as we know them, began, according to Scripture, when Jesus ascended. The end times started when He ascended 30 A.D. There was a sense among Peter, as well as Paul in his writings, that they thought the second coming of Jesus, the parousia, was at hand. It was going to happen any day. It didn't. But we're to live the same. We're to live like the end is going to come at any time. That's how we're to live. It could happen at any time. It may happen tonight. It may go another 2,000 years. We don't know. But we're to live in light of Jesus coming, His second coming. Now, the Bible says with one day that the Lord is as a thousand years, thousand years is one day. Okay, he's been gone two days, 2,000 years, right? And he doesn't count time as we do. We do know the reason Jesus has not returned yet is to give more people an opportunity to be saved. Scripture tells us that. So it says because of his grace and his patience that he hasn't returned yet. But we're all to live as if the end is at hand. Here's something else uh, that's very interesting. Every time that... um, you see the second coming talked about in the Bible, whether it's Mark 13, whether it's Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus speaking about the end times, whenever it is, it always has some type of ethical implication. In other words, every time the second coming of Jesus is mentioned, there's always some sense of what kind of people should you be right now? seeing that the end's going to come. In other words, live ethically the way you should now because one day Jesus is going to return. Jesus in Matthew 13, and, or rather Mark 13 and Matthew 24, both in both of those, he says, I'm coming again, therefore live the way you should have. Paul in 1 Thessalonians, Jesus is returning, therefore live the way now you should live. Always some type of, eschatology always has some type of ethical implication to it. Now listen to what he says. Since the end is at hand, two things. Be self-controlled and be sober-minded. In other words, clear-headed and self-controlled. He uses the word nepho, which means well-balanced. And he uses the word sofrenovio, which means to exercise self-control of the mind, keep your senses about you, be sensible, So since Jesus is returning, or we may die before he does, live self-controlled and sober-minded. He says, so you can pray properly. Now hold on a second. For the sake of your prayers... We're to pray, self-controlled, and sober-minded. 
Have you ever thought that you could be praying without a clear head or without self-control? Sometimes we pray out of anger. Sometimes we pray out of frustration. Sometimes we pray out of our political beliefs. He says pray, self-controlled, and sober-minded. Our prayer life should be characterized like that. Prayer was to be the response when they see Jesus' day approaching. Pray. So many Christians today, they talk, man, they study prophecy charts, and they read books, and they predict the second coming, and they're listening to podcasts all the time, and books about reading books about but Jesus' second coming, when's it going to be, and all the things surrounding it. Peter says, pray. Don't read more books. Don't listen to more podcasts. Pray when you see the day approaching. Dr. Hebert says, prayer is the most noble and necessary ministry God entrusts to his children. But it's also, he says, one of the most neglected ministries we have. The Greek word Peter uses for prayer there, prosukos, is the most general word used for prayer. It includes prayers of all kinds, prayer of intercession for people, prayers of confession, prayers of praise, prayers of all kinds. As you see Jesus' day approaching, as we see the world getting worse and worse and worse, rather than griping about it, we pray more. Dr. Davids, one of the, as I said, quoted him several times in our study because he's one of the foremost authorities on First Peter, says, proper prayer is not an opiate or not an escape. It is a function of clear vision, seeking for even clearer vision for God because the days are getting worse. He says, it is only through clear communication with headquarters that a soldier effectively stands guard you've got to have a clear head clear communication and self-control from headquarters when you see the days getting worse and folks we see the days getting worse so to prepare his readers for persecution and meeting jesus soon which some of them would peter urged them Make the best use of your time now. Get rid of your old life. Get rid of sexual immorality. Get rid of alcohol, drunkenness, and live clear, clear-headed and self-controlled. Good advice for us as well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you today for your word, and I just pray that you'd help us, Lord, to do the same as, as Peter suggested for these readers as well. God, it is my prayer that Every one of us will not go back to our old ways of life, old ways of talking, old ways of thinking, old ways of, of actions, sexual immorality to drunkenness, all the things that we did, in the, some did in the past. Lord, help us to move on to the new life in Jesus. And Father, I just pray that as we see your day approaching, that we will live 
in the way you want us to live now. Help us, Lord, to be self-controlled and sober-minded as we do so that we can pray with effectiveness and clarity and know exactly what you want us to do in the days that are here. God, thank you for our people tonight. I pray that you'd help us to put this into practice even this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.